0: Our scripture this morning is coming from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, we're going to be reading verses 4 through 12. And beloved, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your hearts and with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk in the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign upon your hands, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that your word would guide us, that it would instruct us, that it would challenge us and even chastise us. Father, I pray that you would use your word to build us up in our faith, that we might walk in a way that pleases you. Father, I pray that if there are those who are here or within the hearing of this voice as it goes out in various mediums that do not have faith, Father, I pray that you would use these words to draw them to faith. We pray that you are glorified. We pray that you are honored. We pray that you are praised and proclaimed We pray that you would do this either through me or in spite of me. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this time of the year, Christians usually come to church expecting a nativity sermon. And I'm going to leave that to Pastor Pagliotti tonight. And uh, certainly Pastor Byron um, dealt with that or brought you one last week. But we have something else going on in the church service this morning that is also very special and I thought was worth spending some time... Talking about for we have a family here who is professing faith and preparing to come into membership in the church and so it 's a time where we are also as a congregation celebrating the the miracle of regeneration that God works in his elect and also the calling to faith that all of us have in our lives. Uh, A call, a challenge perhaps even to, to live a life that is worthy of that calling to which you have been called. And so with that in mind, I thought a good place for us to go and reflect for a time this morning would be in a passage known in the Hebrew language as the Shema, which is simply the first word in the Hebrew text. Arguably, this is one of the most important, most significant doctrinal passages of the entire Old Testament canon. Now, we might might wrestle over because there are some really important passages throughout the Scriptures. But this is one of those very essential passages to, to digest and to reflect. So important, was it, that Jesus, when asked to summarize the law, he went here to this particular passage. It's a foundational confession of faith. In the Jewish world, it forms a prayer that is prayed both morning and in evening, and typically on one's deathbed. And it is a statement of one's identity in relationship to God. And that's really, this third aspect is where I want to reflect and dwell uh, some this morning. This idea about who God is and who I am in relationship uh, to to that God that we are called to serve. Uh, it's part of our identity. And so specifically and my wife is going to be sitting there in shock that I'm actually going to do this. I want to cover this in the context of three points. She knows me better than you do, but I rarely ever preach a three-point sermon. I, 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 I don't like it. Um, but sometimes a text seems to fit into that context. And So this morning, you're going to get a three-point sermon from a guy who doesn't normally preach three-point sermons for better or for worse. And the three points are this. Really, the questions of who, what, and how. Who God is. What that requires. What statement uh, that requires of us. And then how we're to live that out. Um, Who, what, and how. So let's begin with the who. Who is God? And that's really verse 4. And if you have your Hebrew Bibles open before you, it would sound something like this. Shema Israel Adonai, Yahweh is the word there. Sometimes they'll pronounce that uh, Hashem, um, or Yahweh Elohim, uh Yahweh Echad. Um, the first word of the passage is where it gets its name. Shema, Hear. Listen. Listen up. It's in the imperative, in fact. So it carries with it this degree of force. Listen and pay attention to what I am saying here. But you need to understand something. In Hebrew, when the word listen is used in this way, is not meant simply as a suggestion, nor is it meant as a way of saying, I'm going to convey some facts to you. You know, kind of how you might be in a classroom and you're studying geography maybe in school. And the the teacher is going to give you all sorts of facts and maybe about 10% of which you might see again on the test. Um, This is not what Shema means. This is not what it means to say here. This is not something that would allow information to go in one ear and out the other. Basically, when Shema is used in this way, listen here is used in this way. It's to say, pay attention to what I am saying because the result of what I am saying should be reflected in your obedience. All right, kids. Youths, when your parents say, "Listen up, pay attention. What do they mean by that? Do they expect you to kind of let it go in here and say, okay, I've heard it, Dad. I appreciate that, and I'm going to move on. Or do they expect you to say, I've heard it, Dad. I respect it, Dad. And I will be obedient to what it is that you're calling me to do. Right? I'm just seeing blank faces on some of the the youth in there. But the right answer is to say, yes, I'm going to obey. That's what mom and dad mean when they say, listen up. And that's what God means when through Moses, he says, listen up, O Israel. There's an expectation that you obey. And when you don't obey, there are consequences because disobedience is sin. And so Moses says, listen or hear, O Israel. Obedience is expected, and ignoring these words is not only sin, but it's also a rebellion against God. You see, there's no middle ground when it comes to God. There is either sin or not sin. Anything that we do not do in faith, Paul writes in Romans, is sin. So to whom is this command being addressed? Israel. That is a name that is given to Jacob and his descendants, uh, the children of promise. It is a name given to us in Christ Jesus. Paul would, would write, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise, who are counted as offspring. And he continues on in Galatians to say that if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. It's a name that that means we've contended with God. It's not necessarily the most flattering name in the world, but it's a name that's given to us. And that's the thing to pay attention to. Because names give us something, They, they tell us something. The first thing that a name tells us is that we are in relationship with one another. And the second thing is when one is able to give a name to another, that means that he's in authority over that person. Now think about it. I actually looked it up this morning. There are just over 8 billion people estimated to live in this world. And probably, I'm guessing, and I haven't looked at your Facebook friends pages, but most of us have maybe three or four hundred, maybe five hundred people that we know by name, you know, that we've connected. What's the difference between those faceless masses throughout the earth and those other people? It's a name. And because of that name that you've learned from somebody, there's a connection that's been made there. There's a a relationship that is beginning to be formed. Over time, that may grow into something. Over time, it may not. But it it separates the people that you just kind of happen to bump into when you go to the mall from the people that you actually know. One of the things that is also interesting about a name is that when we value a relationship with somebody, one of the first things that we do as part of that is we learn a name and we pay attention to the name. You know, you can find out very quickly who really cares about you and who doesn't care about you, who wants to be in relationship with you and who doesn't want to be in relationship with you. Because they bother to try and learn your name. I mean, it's not always the easy thing to do. I had a high school for five years. Every year I had a hundred new kids sitting in the classroom in front of me. You know, and I had to make it my point to learn names. And learn names very quickly because when kids knew that you cared about them enough to learn their name, they knew that you actually cared as opposed to them just being a number filling a seat, you know, so that, that you know you can justify your, your payroll. Names are important, and valuing and cherishing taking time to learn somebody's name makes a difference in their life. Pay attention to people who are in business and who are in sales. You know, we are more inclined to buy something you know from a real estate agent who knows us by name. You know, and we know their name and we we form that relationship. Okay? Name means relationship. But giving somebody a name means I have the authority to do that to somebody. Quick straw poll here. How many of you got your name from your parents? I mean, you may not be named after your parents, but in most cases, Most of us were named by our parents or maybe grandparents or in some cultures maybe an elder in in the community. Uh, I've got friends in Kenya and there's a whole whole structure in terms of how their children are named. And the first son is named after the father of the father and the second son is named after the father of the mother. And you kind of work into uncles and cousins and things along those lines. And there's a whole rubric by which how children get their name. But for the most part, children don't name themselves. Somebody in authority has chosen a name for them. Now, God has chosen a name for us corporately as his people. We are called Israel. We are called the church. We are given that name. That means God has chosen to be in relationship with us, but also demonstrating his authority over us in the context of that relationship. He is not a foreign god. He is not an unknown God. He is a God in relationship with us. And that relationship frames our entire understanding of who He is. Because He is our God. It's, he's, he's pronounced upon us. His covenant name. And so we who were not a people are now called sons of the living God. And a people for His own possessions. This is the language that this first verse communicates. Hear, O Israel. That's you. Listen. Pay attention. You, the church, your God has given you a name and he is addressing you with the expectation that you will follow and obey what it is that he is saying. He is Yahweh, our God. Yahweh Elohimu. in in the Hebrew. Now, a few notes here. Yahweh is a covenantal name that God gives. It's a name by which we are called to know Him. It's also a name that typically translates as I am that I am. It speaks about His eternal nature and His unchanging being. It may sound a little bit politically correct to say this when we talk about God's unchanging being, but the right thing, it's the right thing to say when you think it through is that, that God has no potential. Our kids may have potential to grow up. But God is complete fulfillment. He's actualized in every sense of the way. He can't learn. He can't grow. He can't be bigger than He is. He is. He simply is. That's what this name communicates to us. He is fully actualized. He is unchanging. He is true. He cannot lie. He cannot sin. He cannot cease to be God. And for the Christian... For you and me, this should be a profound source of comfort. Because that means that God will never say to you, oh yeah, this grace thing, I know the Bible is filled with this grace thing, but I'm kind of done with that. You guys have taken that grace and gone to haywire with it. I'm going to start introducing more law. And now you've got to be saved by your works. God will never say that to you because He's unchanging. He'll never say this covenant thing, Yeah, well, I'm done with that. God is unchanging. And because He is unchanging, we can be assured of our salvation. Because it's not about who we are. It's about whose we are. It's about the fact that God is who He is. And that's a good thing. Yet when God's covenantal name is used there, it doesn't stop there. It speaks about God being Elohim, or Elohimu, which is basically is the construction that forms our God, the statements. Elohim is a name that speaks of God's power, and it also speaks about his authority as a lawgiver. And once again, that is a profound statement about God's eternal character. He is the one. That names us. He is the one that defines our relationship. And as one who defines our relationship, he is the one that establishes law over us. Moral law, civil law, obviously, ceremonial law has been completed and fulfilled by Christ. Our Christian liberty is an important thing. Read the Westminster Confession. It's a really important thing. But our Christian liberty provides us freedom of conscience from the laws that are and doctrines made up by men. When it comes to the things that Christ has commanded... When it comes to the things that God has laid forth for our lives, in terms of the practice of our faith, the practice of our lives, and the worship as we gather together, these are commandments that God has given for us to follow. These don't fall under the Christian liberty. This is part of our discipleship. A discipleship that is marked by practicing righteousness. It is a discipleship that is marked by taking every thought captive into obedience to Christ. And it's a relationship that is marked by, by learning to observe everything that Jesus has commanded. That's a great commission, folks. That's what it means to be a disciple. It's to be obedient. gets us back to the Shema thing. It means that we're to be obedient to God in every area. One of the problems of our culture today is that people, too many people in too many churches... Confuse liberty for license, thinking that God gives me liberty so I can live however I want. Every man living and worshiping as he sees fit is sin because God is the lawgiver and he has the right to bind our conscience according to his word. And we have the responsibility to obey. It's not about preference. When we pursue our preferences, then we again find ourselves in sin. And the question that we need to be asking ourselves when we hear that is kind of, it's easy in the context of church to say, yeah, I'm good with that, totally agree with that. But the question that we really be asking ourselves is how serious we are about that. Because all of us fall short. The question is, when we fall short, do we repent in godly humility and grace and, and sorrow over our sin, or do we fall short and just excuse it? Say, well, you know, I'm just going to fall short, and that's just the way it works, and so uh, it's okay for me to live this way or that way. Um, as Pastor Pagliotti prayed this morning about how oftentimes we have a tendency to try and, and live in both worlds. You know, straddling the fence, as it were. We're not called to straddle the fence. The final statement in this first verse here is Yahweh Echad, the Lord is one. By the way, there are many people who would criticize Christianity as being polytheistic. You've got three separate gods well, no, we don't. And one of the neat things about that is the fact not only do we find that doctrine established here in Deuteronomy 6 4, but we find it echoed throughout the New Testament. In fact, it's quoted and cited more times in the New Testament than it is in the Old Testament, that God is one. You look at passages like Romans 3, verse 30, or 1 Corinthians 8, 6, and Galatians three twenty, and 1 Timothy 2, 5, and James two nineteen, and I can go on and on and on and on and say, look, our God is one. He's one God, but three persons. There's a point where our brain is just going to melt a little bit. And we need to affirm those things that we don't always understand because it's what the scriptures affirm the Council of Nicaea I mean the ancient creeds affirm the same kind of thing that Jesus when he speaks about Jesus, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made. We sang some of that language in the the first Christmas hymn that we sang this morning. He's one substance with the Father, uh, by whom all things were made. And it speaks the same way about the Spirit and says that the Spirit is to be worshipped together with the Father and the Son. The later Athanasian Creed, which is a great, great afternoon read. I commended that to everybody. Um, it speaks about the divinity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as one and their glory being equal and, and their majesty co-eternal and the, what the Father has, the Son has and the Holy Spirit has. This is the testimony and this language of the Trinity is so important and so vital to our faith that you cannot rightly claim to be a Christian without affirming the language of the Trinity in itself. God is one God in essence but he is three in persons. And the root of that doctrine is found here in the Shema. But there's one more meaning that needs to be attached to this language of God is one, echad. Because echad in Hebrew is not limited to merely a numerical singularity. We sometimes kind of read that and that's kind of where our minds go. But it also speaks about, can be translated even as, God is alone, uh, or God alone. In other words, there is no God in God's presence. He stands alone. He is not member of a class called God's. You know, we, we chuckle at that language, but there are people today that are arguing for that, and there's kind of a resurgence of that idea that is rising up within theological circles. That's, Greek mythology—that's Hinduism, you know—that we got this pantheon of all these different gods here, and to suggest that God's just the best of them is not what the text is saying. That God is in class all unto Himself; He is the God par excellence. He is—he is a God greater than which no other God can be imagined. And by the way, that language goes back to Anselm um, uh, of Canterbury, in kind of 11th century. Uh, theologian and preacher, and and uh, who is known for what's called the ontological argument for the existence of God, and that's a great Sunday school lesson, and a great kind of mind exercise to kind of work yourself through. And so, um, it's kind of a kind of thing for another time, but uh, it's a great thing to to kind of wrestle through. God is not standing alongside of a bunch of other gods in a pantheon. God is, He's one. He's alone, and there is no one that approaches him. And that's the who, folks. That's the who our God is. God is our creator. He is our covenant redeemer. He is the one who called us. He is the one who named us. He is the one who gives us both law and morality. He is the one who is one. He is eternal, and he is to be glorified. So what does that mean for us? And that's verse 5. You shall love Yahweh, your God, with all of your hearts, with all of your soul. Some of our Bibles will translate that as life. and with all of your most of our Bibles will translate that as strength. I prefer an older Hebrew translation um, to translate that as abundance. Interestingly, when Jesus cites this passage, and we kind of saw this in the Westminster Confession this morning, is that he cites it as all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And again, that's a really fun Sunday school conversation to have with the two parts and three parts uh, kind of thing. But in the Hebrew culture, your heart, the thing that you need to remember when you're talking about this, is not a reference to your passions. In, in American culture, you know, we get to Valentine's Day and I love you with all of my heart and we mean that I'm passionate in love with you. That's not a Hebrew. If the Hebrews were going to say that, they would say, I love you with all of my bowels. Um, my wife can testify that after she heard me preaching on that one time uh, for or Valentine's Day, I think it was, she made me a card in the shape of a colon and small intestines. And she said, I love you with all of my bowels. And I was very touched and moved by that. Um, In the Hebrew context, heart is a reference to your intellect. It's a reference to your personality. It's a reference to your spiritual traits that reflect the Imago Dei. If you were here last Sunday, Pastor Pugliati... Dealt with that question about the the, um, the imago dei, what, what what bears the image of God in us? That's the heart. You're to love God with all of that. Your soul is a, is a in the Hebrew is is a, a reference to kind of the the broadness, the totality of your being, everything that's inside of you. And then this last statement, which is usually translated as strength, I prefer abundance. The, the Hebrew word here is mi-old. Um It is it is the equivalent to the English adjective "very," but it's used as a noun in this particular case. Usually, it's used as as, as a a uh, an adjective. You know, um, God saw what He had created, and He said it was tov mi'olv. It was very good. Okay? We 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 we're used to using that word that way. But when you turn an adjective into a noun, it gets a little bit kind of awkward. And so you say, we're to love our God with all of our veryness. But what does that mean? Well, while our hearts and our soul really typically refer to those things that are internal, most kind of... Again, there's some debate on this, but understand this, uh, this idea of mi'od to refer to those things that are external. The, 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 the results of our works, the efforts of our hands, uh, the things that, that come to us from the outside, those things that are in our sphere of influence. And so, for example, we get to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and it famously begins with the language of the chief uh, end of man. Uh, our purpose in life, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that we're to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our meod, with all of our, our abundance. Everything that is part of our being, part of our life, we are to use to, to, the, to the love and the glory of God. We're to love God with our minds, our personalities, with our lives, with the interactions that we have with one another, with all of your stuff, whatever that stuff may be. You're to love God with everything and to hold nothing back for yourself. And to live like this is not something that we should see as a sacrifice, but it's something that we should see as the way which we live fully, that we might glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Because it's not about us. It's about Him. Similar to the Heidelberg Catechism, kind of that German Reformed kind of uh, catechism of faith begins with the same words, My only comfort in life and to death is that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We're not our own. And neither is your stuff. We're Americans. We like our stuff. But our stuff doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. And thus, we should be using our stuff to the glory of God. You are not your own. And there's really no middle ground. According to Scripture, you're either living and acting as a child of God or living and acting as a child of the devil. And those things that are us, that are about us, belong to one or the other or are used to the glory of one or the other. So which will it be? And that leads us to the how. Verses 6-12 through answers that question. And these words that I command to you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently. We sometimes miss the diligently sometimes part. That means intentionally, uh, practically. We're not kind of kind of glossing over things. It's not like you memorize a few things and you're good. But diligently to your children, you shall not talk of them when you sit in your house, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk in the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign upon your hands and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to you with, with uh, great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, take care. That's the key to remember. Take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We're to study the Word, discuss the Word with our peers, teach the Word to our children and not neglect the Word, and certainly do not forget what God has done. And folks, especially when everything is going good, at least on earthly terms, you know, when our bank account is, is, is where it should be, when the bills are not burying us when when our health is good, when everything kind of, you know, family gets along okay and all of those kinds of things, it's easy to forget the Lord and to begin to think, well, you know, I deserve this. No. Folks, you do not. We have been called and commanded to live to the glory of God and never forget Him and His work. And that is the only way we will find joy and meaning in our lives. As I close this morning, I want to take you back to verse 4 briefly. If you are reading along in your Hebrew Old Testament, your Hebrew Bible with me this morning, I know a couple of you could do that a little bit at least. If you were reading along with that, you would notice something very unusual about this verse. The last letter of the first word, and the last letter of the last word in verse 4, is written in big fonts compared to all of the other Letters of all of the other words. It's the only place in the Hebrew Bible where this happens. If you pull those two big letters out in Hebrew, the first put them together and make one word. The Hebrew it, it forms the word the Hebrew word ad, which means witness or testimony. When these words form this idea, it's a reminder to us that this Shema is our witness to the world. Whose we are and who God is is our witness to the world. makes us different than any other people's, any other religion that is found in the world. And if you reverse those letters, they come up with the word da, which means knowledge. Because... The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and we will not fear the Lord unless our witness is faithful, our testimony is true. And so this nativity season, we should remember the incarnation of Christ. That's a big deal. That's a really, really big deal. We should remember the life, the teachings, and the sufferings of our Lord while he was on the earth. That is a bigger deal in many ways. We should remember the sacrifice and the sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a really, really big deal. And we should remember the the resurrection and the glorification of Christ because everything rests on it as Christians. We lose that. We lose everything. But we shouldn't stop there. We should also remember what comes next. Because it's not about just getting saved and getting your fire insurance pass you know, kind of thing. It's about being saved and living a life that honors the one who has saved you. That's what the Shema is instructing us. And that's the joy of seeing new members come into the church. Because you have a testimony of a family saying, this is what we choose to do with our lives and with our family. And that's a good thing. It should be a reminder to us this is what we are called to do and be kind of renewing our own vows as well. That's a really big deal. It's an ongoing big deal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and we thank You for the way that, that Word instructs us and guides us and teaches us and forces us forward. It confronts us in our sins. It confronts us with the things that we have oftentimes liked to hold on to challenges us to say I want to renew my commitment every day to be faithful to you. Father I pray that we do that. And I pray that you glorify yourself in the lives of these saints. We're also striving to do that every day. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sermons Podcast by Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Harrisville, Pennsylvania. Our purpose is to spread the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about us, check us out at harrisvilleopc.org.